friends, with every passing Sunday, um, I am learning to trust more and more in the ways in which God um, is at work in the life of the Southeast Raleigh Table, um, for the ways in which um, we have staff who can hold um, the weight of the world, not out of their own human capacity, but in calling all of us collectively together to remember our friends near and also far. Um, I've been thinking about how last Sunday we read from Isaiah chapter 58, which um, Pastor Kiana uh, referred to, because um, in that passage of scripture it talks about the, the one who comes to be the repair of the breach and who also puts back together the ruined cities, and we did not know what would be the reality for our siblings in Turkey and also in Syria, but we just trust, like, okay, God, this is the passage that you have given to us. Maybe in some ways it is equipping us to see with new eyes, to hold things with um, hands that know that we can hand things over um, to God. I say this because this um, morning, the passage of scripture that was designated for this particular Sunday was not one that I was all that excited about. Um, in fact, I was kind of like, oh, Lord, can you just like not make something else come from the heavens, you know? Um, Deuteronomy 30 was not, the, was not the passage that I wanted, um, that I would have chosen for this morning. And yet, I am, if I think about how God has been so good to us and rehearse God's goodness, want to trust that this isn't about us manufacturing moments, um, but the way in which God weaves together something that is like beautiful and miraculous uh, when we gather in this space. So um, I just give God thanks and praise for whatever God is going to be up to this morning because God has shown us that God has been up to some beautiful things in the last couple of weeks. This morning's um, scripture is, um, it is an interesting one. So I want to give a little bit of context. Typically, uh, Reverend Sayoon comes and he reads um, the scripture, but this morning I want to give some, some context to this passage of scripture. It's considered one of the, the farewell speeches of Moses. And you may remember that Moses is the great, like the chief uh, liberation officer for God's people when they were enslaved in Egypt. They have basically 40 years of a trek through, um, through the wilderness uh, on their way to the promised land. And they're on the cusp of actually going into the promised land. And now uh, Moses knows, Moses has heard from God that Moses is not going to enter into the land. So basically has taken them basically all, all the way, you know, into the, almost to the promised land, and Moses is not going to be able to cross over. Um, a, a young mentee, Joshua, is going to take the people into the land. And so Moses is offering uh, his like, closing, closing words. The interesting thing is that after this 40-year trek of being in the wilderness and about to go into the land that God has promised, the land that God has promised has now been taken over by the Babylonians. So it's like you've taken this 48, you know, this 40-year trek, and you think it's going to be so simple just to move into the promised land, but now there's going to be a little bit of resistance even to go into the place that had been, had been promised. And so uh, Moses is reminding the Israelites, who are probably feeling a little bit deflated and defeated after they have taken this very long trek, that now it's going to come with a little bit of resistance to go into the promised land. Um, God, uh, Moses is reminding the people of God's, of God's faithfulness. Now, the thing about this particular passage is that it is fairly um, explicit about, like, cursing and, uh, and coming against adversaries and enemies. And I want to, as uh, you prepare your ears and the ears of your heart to hear this, is to remember that in Middle Near Eastern culture, there was this idea that God was intimately um, involved in all things. 
in all things. Now, that's, that was kind of like, the, like the, the cultural theology of the day is that God has to be in, involved in all things. Now, we know, uh, of course, when we read scripture in the Gospels, that we are called to love our enemies, not necessarily smite our enemies. And so um, I want you to just remember this kind of cultural reference that that doesn't necessarily mean this is who God is, but this is how God was understood, okay? This is how God was understood. Also, too, with this enemy and adversary language, um, if we can remind ourselves that God is a God of justice, meaning that when harm befalls those um, who have been marginalized or oppressed, God is going to always show up as a God of, a God of justice. Now, sometimes um, the way in which humans might think about that or dispensing justice might be using enemy and adversary language. Once again, the God of justice and the way human beings sometimes think about like, okay, what do we name those who have harmed us might look a bit, a bit different. The last thing that I wanna share about this passage of scripture is that there is a lot of like causality language. If you do this, then this will happen. If you do this, then this will happen. Again, we recognize theologically there is uh, nothing we can do to make God love us less and nothing we can do to make God love us more. If you can just all shake your heads. This is, this is good theology. So when you hear, but if you do this, then, if you do this, then, if you do this, then, especially around disobedience, and this uh, that will, will be one of the words that is used, is I want you to think about um, that in regard to when we are disobedient, it looks like us trying to be our own gods. Us trying to manage our own lives. Us trying to confer wellness on ourselves, sometimes in ways that are not great. And so like the Israelites have this moment when they're in the wilderness that Moses goes to the mountain to hear from God. And while uh, Moses is gone, oh, the Israelites decide that they're going to just like, they just kind of got a little bit out of control. And um, they decide to like burn all this like jewelry that they have and they erect like a golden, um, uh, a, a golden figure that they want to now bow down to. It's a reminder that sometimes when we are left to our own devices and we choose to somehow be the gods of our own lives, we don't oftentimes operate in ways that are well. Again, enemy adversary language, I, I just, so I want you to, so that you don't brace yourself when you hear that to understand a God of justice. And then secondly, when you hear this kind of causality to remember um, how God is always inviting us into a life that is really life, not a life where we try to become our own gods, okay? I realize that when we read scripture, on any given day, I do not know how scripture has been used to weaponize, to micromanage you, um, sometimes even to oppress some of us. So I didn't want to gloss over. I didn't want to gloss over. I didn't want to gloss over. Okay, Deuteronomy 30, Moses' farewell speech, verses 1 through 14. Hear now these words. When all these things have happened to you, the blessings and the curses that I have set before you, if you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, and you and your children obey God with all your heart and with all your soul, just as I am commanding you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, gathering you again from all the peoples among whom the Lord your God has scattered you. Even 
if you are exiled to the ends of the world, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there God will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land that your ancestors possessed, and you will possess it. God will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, or basically like change your heart, and the heart of your descendants, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, in order that you may live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on the adversaries who took advantage of you. Then you shall again obey the Lord, observing all God's commandments that I am commanding you today. And the Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all your undertakings, in the fruit of your body, in the fruit of your livestock, and in the fruit of your soil. So everything in their lives will, have, will bear abundance. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you. I love that. God will take delight in prospering you, just as God delighted in prospering your ancestors when you obey the Lord your God by observing God's commandments and decrees that are written in the book of the law. Because you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Surely this commandment that I am commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. Basically, Moses is offering this word like this, this way of God coming with abundance. Um, even if it seems too good to be true, it is true. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us? And get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross to the other side of the sea for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it. No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart for you to observe and for you to hold on to. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our sermon series, Rest in Love, and I want to share how this passage is about love, reminding uh, us again of what um, Reverend Coltrane Battle once said, that the love of God does not harm. The love of God does not harm, so we can rest in love. So let me tell you a, a, a little story about myself in 2022. October and November were incredibly busy months for me. I mean, they were like so busy that I started showing up to meetings about an hour early. That's too early. That's how busy it was. Uh, and I found myself um, not really being able to manage my calendar well, and even some missteps happened in my personal life. Uh, one of those particular mishaps in the month of, um, of, of October came after I had done this really fun Enneagram workshop for a local company, I mean, I was like feeling so good. I felt like I'd kind of like gotten stuff together. You know, like you have one of those days where you're like, I'm adulting so hard and I need someone to know that I'm adulting so hard. But I felt great about this particular workshop that I had done. So then I'm like, let me make myself a little bit of lunch, wash my hands, you know, beforehand. And when I turn on the, the um, you know, the faucet, no water pours forth. the well was dry. <laughs> so I think to myself, oh goodness, there's probably a little bit of construction going on 
in my neighborhood. Let me go outside and see who's messing with some pipes, uh, you know, uh, in, in my neighborhood. I go outside and I do not see anyone messing with pipes, but I do see a little hanger on my door from the city of Raleigh. Black storytelling plot twist. Come to find out. <laughs> come, to, come to find out that my water had been cut off. Apparently, the city of Raleigh had been trying to get in touch with me about me paying some bills. And apparently, I had, in the midst of my very busy month of October, not seen some of their correspondence to me. And they decided that they needed to take action, thereby to hold me accountable for the fact that I had not paid the city of Raleigh. And the city of Raleigh said, on this day, you will not be able to wash your hands before you eat your little cheese sandwich. Here's the thing. The city of Raleigh did not care that I had just led a beautiful Enneagram workshop and helped people to have breakthroughs in their lives. The city of Raleigh did not care that I was good for it. I go, I, I'm good for it, city of Raleigh. I was just too busy and forgot to push, send, and submit. Let me tell you why the city of Raleigh did not care. Because I'm in a contractual relationship with the city of Raleigh. In a contractual relationship, there are certain things that I have to do in order to get services. And there are certain services that are allotted to me if there are certain things that I do. It is transactional, the contractual relationship that I have with the city of Raleigh. I do something, they do something. They do something, I do something. And the reality is, this is how it is with most of the relationships that we have. They feel contractual. They feel transactional. You do something, then I do something. I do something, then you do something. But this is not the paradigm in which we are in relationship with God. Which is why we can hear the words in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and we can rest a little bit differently in them than if we had a contractual relationship with God. Because if we had a contractual relationship with God, then it would always be dependent on how we showed up than how God showed up. Oh, that would be rough. That would be rough. This is not how we negotiate relationship with the triune God, the one that we call creator, redeemer, and sustainer. This is not the way in which we negotiate relationship with the one who is Christ, God, our parent, you know, Christ the Son, spirit, the comforter. We engage in a more powerful paradigm that is called covenantal relationship, not contractual relationship. Covenants are anchored in a God who loves us and who draws us near. Covenants call us to be as faithful as we can possibly be, to love God with our hearts, our minds, our souls, with all of our being, and also to treat others with that same kind of love. Covenants also understand that as human beings, we sometimes cannot fulfill that particular leaning in, that instinct of loving God well. But that God still renews relationship with us and sometimes even makes up for the deficit in our lives. So when we break covenant, when we cannot live into covenant, then God continues to call us back, 
call us back in. That is why when individuals join in, in marriage, we don't call it a contractual agreement. We call it a covenantal um, relationship. Because people cannot be perfect. All that goo goo go, oh, and I'm going to love you all my life with the heat of a thousand suns. No. This person's going to start breathing hard one day, and you're going to be like, why are you breathing? You know? You're going to need a God who's going to say that, like, you, these two individuals are going to sometimes not be faithful to each other, not going to be able to show up for each other, but God finds God's self in, in between those words, those vows, that God continues to bring us back in relationship. It's why in verse 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 30, that Moses can say to God's people, even if you are exiled to the ends of the world, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there God will bring you back. Even if you have done something to put yourself in peril, that you are exiled. It's, it's why, um, why the God who shows up in Deuteronomy chapter 30, even after the Israelites have like tried to build a graven structure and bow down to this graven structure, this graven structure that did not provide manna or water, this graven structure that did not take them um, out of the clutches of Pharaoh in Egypt, that even when they turn their backs on God, that God says, I'm going to abundantly prosper you, you yourself, and pretty much everything else that you touch or that is in your sphere, your land and even your livestock, when your pets get blessed abundantly by God, even though there were times when the Israelites abandoned God. Because the paradigm in which we are in relationship is not contractual, it is covenantal. And covenantal relationships should feel a little bit like an incomprehensible dynamic. And it should have felt like an incomprehensible dynamic um, to the people of God who were hearing Moses' farewell speech. Because the love relationship, the love affair that God's people, as noted in the in, um, in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, and God was, I mean, it was a roller coaster ride. God would do something beautiful for the Israelites. The Israelites would be like, oh, God, we thank you, and they would sing a song. Then a crisis moment would happen. Oh, God, wh where are you, God? Where are you, God? You know, W-Y-D, what you doing, God? You know, it's like, you know, then God would say, you know what, even though the people are grumbling against me or they're complaining or they're turning their back on me, I will bless them. I'm going to show them that I still love them even when they cannot love me back. And then God will do a beautiful thing. And the people of Israel are like, oh, my gosh, this is so wonderful. This is beautiful. Until the next crisis hits. And it's as though they have this amnesia about the love of God. When the next crisis hits, and then God is like, do you remember how I, do you remember how I, do you remember how I? The miracle in this, the miracle in this is that every single time God's people are not faithful, every single time God's people grumble and complain, and even when God can name the grumbling of God's people, God still shows up. The ark of scripture there is no part where it's like, and then God left the chat. 
Do you understand the miracle in that? That the arc of scripture, literally the arc of the biblical narrative is that God pursues us even when we don't know how to be pursued. God still loves us when we don't know how to be loved. That when we turn away, God is always trying to find a way to bring us back. When we stand behind the communion table, we say that God speaks to us through the prophets. We don't want to listen to what God has to say, then God speaks to us through the prophets. Sometimes God comes to us in theophanies, burning bushes or doves or water or manna. I mean, God's like, I will not let these people go. In the midst of backpedaling or seeking to be our own gods, it's just the fickleness of being human. That relationship with God is not built on our human capacity, but on God's nature. Here's the good, good, good news. Is that in Deuteronomy 30, it says this. That God will even give us the capacity to love God. That term, like, and then God will circumcise your heart, which is a really interesting kind of uh, metaphor, is that, that God will, will so transform or move within you that your very heart, that your very life has the capacity to take in God's goodness. So it's not even like, Show me how you can love me with all your heart, mind, and strength. But I will actually build within you the capacity to love me with. This is just how good God's love is. You may be wondering, well, Lisa, so what's the point? <laughs> I go back to what my dear sister Reverend Coltrane, Battle said, the love of God does not harm. And to rest in love, we have to trust in love. God's love is trustworthy. I don't know always how love might be mediated in your life. Or my, how you might conceptualize what it looks like for God to love you. Maybe it is that God so pours dreams into you that like when you create, you see how you are reflective of a God who creates and recreates. Or that God is mediated to you in such a way that because God keeps pursuing you, you choose not to be far from yourself. To let yourself be loved as opposed to sometimes the ways in which we want to despise ourselves or flog ourselves. The good news is that God's love won't let us go. This is just one moment in Deuteronomy chapter 30. After the Israelites had so many times turned in the opposite direction. And they hear that even if you are exiled to the farthest ends of the world, this God loves you so much that God will gather you up. We can trust in God's love because God's love does not run out when ours is waning. 
for the long arc of this love story with God is that over and over and over and over again, when we cannot show up, over and over and over and over and over again, God shows up. To rest in love and to trust in God's love. Might you know this? God's love is not mediated through a contractual agreement. God's love is mediated to you through a covenantal agreement. And that is good news. That is just good news. So now may you believe it and live like it is true. Will you pray with me? God, we all hold um, somewhere in our stories an if-then. If they knew, then they wouldn't. If they ever found out, then they wouldn't. If I can't, then they won't. If I ever, they will never. And somewhere in between that if-then, we can sometimes sit in shame. Or feel or see ourselves as unlovable. Or even not deserving of your grace. God, we understand that there is no way that we could match your love for us or extend the grace that you extend to us. But what we are leaning into this day is that you don't live in between the if-then. You are God who loves beyond the if-then. When our love failed, your love remained steadfast. When our hearts were hard, your heart was open. When we came with clenched hands, you came with open hands. When we could not love ourselves or love our neighbors, you loved us more. So God, wherever we may find ourselves mistrusting how you love, God, would you remind us that we can rest in your love, for your love will not let us go, your love will not fail, your love will not harm, your love will never 
come to an end. We thank you, Lord, for loving us so. It is in Christ's name that we offer this prayer. And all God's people said, amen.